0: evening. If you have a copy of scripture, I invite you to open with me to the very beginning, the book of Genesis. It's the first book that you'll find in your Bible. And it is a a large book. If you are familiar at all with your Bible or with the book of Genesis, you will know that it is 50 chapters long. So our goal tonight is to spend at least one minute on each chapter. And uh, so we'll be out of here. And I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But the book of Genesis is the first one that we encounter when we open our English Bible. It's the first one you'll encounter if you open any Bible, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, And the the word Genesis literally translates to mean the beginning or the, the start. And so it's very proper that the Bible would start at the very beginning. Because we all understand that the beginning is where you have to start for any story to make sense. So I'm currently reading a book, it's called Endurance. And this book is about this man named Ernest Shackleton. And he led or he pioneered a, a voyage down to Antarctica back in 1915 and 1916. And throughout the book, you realize, well, in the middle part of the book, you start reading about these guys that are living on chunks of ice that are floating down there in, on the ocean in Antarctica. And so if you were to just start in the middle of the book, and start reading about these guys that are living in tents on ice in Antarctica, you'd be very confused. But the beginning, when you read about how uh, this was actually Shackleton's third voyage down to Antarctica, and he was looking for specific things, and he was going to specific places, and he had a, a reason for why he was going there, then it all makes a whole lot more sense. And then you get to the part where it their ship gets trapped in the ice and gets crushed by the ice. And so then you you understand why they're living on the ice. So the beginning helps us make sense of all the rest. And the same is true with the Bible. If we were to open our Bible at Exodus chapter one and just start from there, we would be really confused. We would have so many questions about, well, who are these people that are slaves in Egypt? And How did they get to Egypt to begin with, and and why are they even significant, and and who is this God who says he's going to rescue them? There would be so many questions that we would have if we did not have the book of Genesis. And so I want you to understand from the very beginning, as we begin this series trying to preach through an overview of every single book, that Genesis, while it's an Old Testament book, it's a big book, there's a lot in it, it is incredibly foundational, to understanding the rest of the Bible, okay? So, uh, like I said, the book of Genesis starts with the very beginning, and as many of you maybe have memorized or you're familiar with, the very first verse of the Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, Genesis being the beginning is where we are going to first start to learn about God. And the very first thing that the Bible tells us about God is that he is a creator. Now, I think if we were to take time and go around the room and ask everybody, what's something that you know to be true about God? We would Maybe some of us would have the same answer, but we would have a ton of different answers because there's a ton of things that the Bible reveals to us about God, what he is like, what his character is, the ways that he, in which he acts. But the very first thing that the Bible itself tells us about God is that He is a creator. That there was a time when there was nothing that existed except He Himself, and He spoke everything into existence. And that's what Genesis lays out for us. And so, the very first thing that we encounter in Genesis is we understand or we come to learn how everything that we know, the entire created order, came into being. And it came into being by God speaking because God is a creator. So the very first thing that we learn in Genesis is that God is a creator. But as we zoom out and look at Genesis as a whole, you're gonna see that Genesis is, or can be, pretty easily broken up into two sections. There are two major uh, sections here in the book. The first is chapters one through 11. Okay, chapter one starts with creation. Chapter 11 tells us about the Tower of Babel, and that is the first section, and we'll talk about what's in there here in just a second. The second section would be chapters 12 through the end of the book. Now, that's a massive section. That's 12 to 50. That is a whole lot of ground to cover, but what you'll see is that there's a a unique thing that happens in chapter 12 that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the book of Genesis, So, in the first section, chapters 1 through 11, what we're going to see is that God reveals his character. Okay, so that's the first part of the book. In chapters 1 through 11, God reveals his character. Because you've got to remember, we're starting at the beginning. When we open the book of Genesis, we don't know anything. right? If we are coming to the Bible and reading it for the very first time, and we've not heard any other portion of the Bible preached or anything else about it, We're starting from the very beginning, and what we need to learn is who God is. What is he like? What does he do? Why are we here? And the first 11 chapters in Genesis reveal a lot of that to us, and they tell us exactly what God is like, and so we'll look at that in detail here in just a minute. But then the second part, the larger part of Genesis, Genesis chapters 12 through 50, they show us that God is committed to his people. God is committed to his people, all right? And we'll look at that here in just a minute. But before we get to that, that second part, the real big part, I want us to look at these first 11 chapters, chapters 1 through 11. It tells us what God is like. And like I just mentioned, the very first thing that we encounter in the book of Genesis is in chapter 1, verse 1. And the very first thing that we learn about God in Scripture is that he is a creator, okay? That is an interesting thing to know about God. Now, as we study the rest of the Bible, and especially as we study the New Testament, and, you know, we talk a lot about the the way things happen in the world aren't right. And lots of things that happen, death and sickness and all of that, it's because of sin, and it's not right. But we also talk about, in the book of Revelation, The Bible tells us that there's going to come a day where God's going to make these things right. And so we understand that there's going to be a recreation, right? And we talk about people becoming believers, God recreates them and makes them a new creature, right? uh, Paul talks about this in, in his letters, right? If anyone believes in Christ and trusts in him, he is a new creation, all right, and so we understand that there's a bigger theme here in all of the Bible. Right, We, we are introduced in the very first verse that God is a creator. But what we're going to see all throughout the Bible is that God is creating and God is recreating. Okay? He's making things new. So that's, that's a, a theme that we see. Another thing that we see is that God has standards for which we are to live by. The first time we're really introduced to this is in chapter 2. After God has created man, uh, he, he creates Adam and he puts him in the garden. And here's what he said. This is Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So, God has a standard. God has rules that he puts in place. And we're going to see in just a second what happens when those rules are broken. Okay? But we also understand, because we are Christians, we're part of the church, that there are a lot of other things that we come to learn about God in the scripture as far as God having a standard, right? We read a lot about that all throughout the Bible, but we're introduced to it here in the very beginning. Okay? Even before sin is in the world. God has a standard, right? And he has told Adam what he can eat from and what he cannot eat from, okay? So there's a standard. God God is in charge and God is able to establish what can be done and what cannot be done. Another thing that we see in these first 11 chapters is that God is holy. And the reason I say God is holy is because of what God does when his rules or his standards are broken. All right. So the first time we see this is chapter 3. Now, we're not going to read the whole account. That would take too long. But what we know happens in chapter 3 is that Adam and Eve are in the garden, and there's a serpent. And the serpent comes to Eve, and the serpent starts talking to Eve and gets her to question the things that she knows to be true. And we all know that Eve ends up taking the fruit because she sees that it's, it's good, uh, it, it pleases the eyes and it seems that it's gonna make one wise and so she takes of the fruit, she eats it, she gives it to Adam who is with her and he also eats it. And what happens is they have now disobeyed that one rule that God gave them. And so we learn very quickly that God is holy because when God, when his rules are disobeyed, There is punishment. God is not going to allow sinfulness and disobedience to go on in his creation. God is gonna deal with it. And so what we see here is that God hands out uh, curses to the serpent. He curses the ground because of Adam. He makes childbearing more painful and the relationship between uh, husband and wife more difficult because God is gonna deal with sin. Now, we also know that Later in the book of Genesis, just a couple chapters down the road, we see this guy named Noah come on the scene. And I think we're all familiar with the story of Noah because what happens with Noah, and let's flip over to Genesis chapter six real quick. Look at Genesis chapter six, verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we see it starts with just a simple little act of disobedience with Adam and Eve eating from the, the single tree that they were told that they should not eat from. And just a few chapters later, We have increasing corruption. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Now, this is not a main point, but it's something that we need to make sure we understand. Sin is serious, and sin will destroy us. We should not be people who think lightly about sin. We should not be people who think that we can just sweep sin under the rug, and as long as nobody else knows about it, we are A-OK. This started with Adam and Eve eating from a tree that they were told not to eat from. You and I, if we were asked, we would probably say, that seems like a pretty innocent thing. That's pretty trivial. But look at where it leads just a few chapters later into the book. Every intention of man's heart is only evil continuously. Y'all, sin is not something to mess with. Sin is not something to joke about. Sin is not something to take lightly. We see that God is holy and God does not take it lightly. We should take that same approach. Understand that sin is bad, that sin destroys, and deal with it as, as God has intended. Put it to death, And we'll see how Jesus does that in in here in a little bit. But because of what's happened and the state that things have gotten into here on the earth, God says that he's going to destroy all of mankind except for Noah and his family. And so he does. And we read about this great flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And we see that while God is holy, and that he hates sin and will punish sin, there's also something else that we see in all of this. And that's that God is merciful. In Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we see that God is merciful. Now, I talked about this a little bit uh, last week when I, I preached on Sunday morning about Genesis 3. And I pointed out, that even though Adam and Eve had sinned and disobeyed God and God is bringing punishment on them, he is still merciful toward them in his punishment. Because initially what God had said to Adam was, in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And so we could interpret that to mean, well, I guess the same day that they eat of the fruit, they're going to drop dead. But that's not what happens. God, even in the curse to the serpent, says there's going to be offspring. And so there's this promise that Adam and Eve are not gonna die today. They are gonna have offspring. They are going to have children. And then beyond that, God provides the skins as a covering. Right? It's the first sacrifice that we see here in the Bible. Something loses its life to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. God provides them skins. That's a very merciful and kind thing for God to do to Adam and Eve. But also we see that God kicks them out of the garden and guards the way to the tree of life so that they can't keep going back and live forever in an eternal sinful state. That is a very merciful thing that God does for them. We may not see that as merciful initially, but for us to live for eternity in a sinful state would be awful. And God's not gonna allow that to happen because God is holy, but he's also merciful. And we see that here with Noah and the flood as well we see that although sinfulness is rampant and it seems to be uh, the intention of everyone's heart throughout the whole world, God still sees Noah and decides to show him mercy. Now let's be clear. We all understand that there are degrees of wickedness, at least to our perception, right? There are some things that we would say, man, that is far more wicked than this other thing. Now we don't know exactly what Noah and his family were doing, but we also know that they are guilty of sin just like the rest of the world. God would have been absolutely just to include them in the flood with the rest of the world but yet God is merciful. God does not give Noah and his family what they deserve but God mercifully spares them and God tells Noah to build the ark and to bring all the animals and, and, and that whole story and so God, we see that, that God is holy, he's gonna deal with sin, but that he's also merciful and that he's very kind. But then we also see, and this is significant here in chapter nine of Genesis. This is after the flood. So after the flood has subsided and uh, they, they leave the ark and they're finally back on ground, we see that God makes a commitment to show mercy to all people. God makes a commitment to show mercy to all people. This is Genesis 9, beginning in verse 7. God is speaking to, uh, to Noah, and he says, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God makes a covenant with Noah and with all of future generations that he will never again destroy the whole earth the way he just did. That is God committing to showing mercy to all people. He doesn't have to do that, but he does. So one of the the big things that we see in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is that God is abundantly merciful even towards sinful people. Now, when we get to Genesis 12, I, I mentioned that there's kind of this this shift in in focus. Genesis chapters one through 11 covers a very massive amount of time. From the very beginning of creation to the point where there's, we don't know exactly, but there's a large portion of the world is populated. There's a lot of people on the earth and it's really bad. Things are are really bad. There's sin is running rampant and we kind of talked about that. And then God starts over with Noah and his family. And in chapter 11, we get some uh, some genealogies. And we're introduced to this guy named Abram. And Abram is a descendant of Noah. And then we get to chapter 12. And what you're gonna see in chapter 12 is that time slows down significantly. So chapters one through 11 covers this massive amount of time. And then chapter 12, we really start to zoom in on a particular individual and his family. So look with me at Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we go from looking at really big picture, big things that, ha- that have happened in God's creation to now we are laser focusing on a man named Abram. So I told you all, right? The big theme that you see in chapters one through 11 is that God reveals his character. One of the main aspects of that character character that we see is that God is merciful and holy. Then we get to the second part of the book, which is chapters 12 through 50, and we see that God is committed to his people. Now, chapter 9, we just talked about that covenant that God made with all flesh is significant because that's God committing to showing mercy to all people. He did not need to do that. He just, out of his, his loving heart, out of his kindness, he decided I'm gonna show mercy to all people and never flood the whole world again or never destroy the whole creation again. And now we get to this individual named Abram and what we read in our call to worship, Genesis 15, God makes a covenant now with Abram. But in Genesis 12 is where we see that Abram is called by God. And God asks him, he says, go from your country, from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And listen to what he says to him. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wow. What a statement that God makes to this random man named Abram. God chooses Abram. We're not told anything about, now Abram was this really awesome guy and he was really on top of his game. And so when God saw that and God said, you know what, I'm gonna choose Abram. We're not told anything like that. All we are told is that God comes to Abram and says, hey, Abram, I want you to get up. I want you to leave your home, your family, your kindred. And I want you to go to the land that I will tell you. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What a statement. And so from chapter 12 all the way through to chapter 50, we are focused on Abram's family. That's the big change. We're no longer looking at the bigger picture of the entire scope of the world. We are now focused on these particular people of Abram. God had promised that he's gonna make Abram a a nation and that he's gonna bless them. But not only that, through Abram, He's going to bless the whole world, all the families of the earth, and so we get here to uh, to Abram. But there's a problem. God has made this awesome promise, but there's a problem. If you look back at Genesis 11, verse 30, we are introduced to Abram and his wife. Sorry, look at verse 29. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. Verse 30, now Sarah was barren. She had no child. So we're told that before we even really know anything about Abram and the promise that God makes to Abram is you're going to have offspring and your offspring is going to be great. So there's a a problem from the very beginning. But that problem is not a problem for God. Because what we see is that when God commits to his people, he's gonna do what he says he's going to do. Our God is a keeper of promises. And so we get to Genesis chapter 15. We're not gonna read the whole thing again. We just heard it for the call to worship. But what we see in Genesis 15 is this interaction between God and between Abram. And Abram's asking God, hey, uh, I know that you made this promise to me, but, but I still don't have any offspring. I don't have any kids. So how's this gonna work out, God? Because I don't see how it's gonna, how it's gonna work. Sarah hasn't been able to have any children. But God says, uh, verse four, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he says, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. So God says, you don't have any sons yet or any children yet, why don't you look up at the stars. If you can count how many stars are up there, that's how many children you're gonna have. Now that's significant because when we get to the end of Genesis, we're gonna be given a number. You may be familiar with the story of Joseph and and how Jacob and his family come to Egypt during this time of famine, and we are told that all the family of Jacob is 70 persons. So it starts with Abram, who has no children, and what you're going to see throughout the next chapters of Genesis, all the way up to the end, is that this this little family, who has no offspring, suddenly has has offspring, and that offspring has offspring, and that offspring has offspring. And we may, as we're reading it, get bogged down in the details and, and, and fail to see the significance of this. But the significance is that God had promised that very thing. And so what we read in all these chapters of Genesis from 12 to 50 is that God is keeping his promises that he had committed to Abram in the first place. And so Abram and his wife, Sarai, she's barren, she's not able to have children, and it takes a long time, there's some 20 plus years of barrenness that they're waiting for God to fulfill the promise, but then God brings a son, and that son is is born, and his name is Isaac, and he is the son of promise. And so then we see Isaac grow up, and Isaac takes a wife named Rebekah, and the funniest thing happens, Rebekah's barren. Rebekah can't have children, but that wasn't a problem for God with Abram and with Sarai. And so what we see is that Isaac prays to the Lord and and Rebekah gets pregnant. And they have two children. They have twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the first and Jacob is the second. And then we see the story follows Jacob, right? Jacob is deceitful in the way that he steals the blessing from Esau because Esau being the firstborn rightfully deserved the blessing. Jacob and Rebekah were deceitfully planning to steal that blessing, and they do. But what's interesting is that even in Jacob's deception, even in the way that he is not honest about taking the blessing, taking something that's not his, God is still committed to his people. God is still committed to what he said to Abram in chapter 12, that I will bless you, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so uh, we get to chapter 17 then. Sorry, I got a little ahead of myself. And in 15, we're introduced to this, this covenant that God makes, right? And, and Abraham cuts the animals in half and lays them on their sides. And after, at nighttime, the, you see the flaming pot go between the pieces. And this is God committing, saying, if I don't keep my covenant, let it be to me like these animals, if I don't keep my word, if I don't keep my word. Significant. And so we get to chapter 17 and we learn that the sign of this covenant is going to be the sign of circumcision. Uh, And so in chapter 17, verse nine, and God says to Abraham, he's changed his name at this point, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring forever. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your, of your foreskin and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So God gives him an actual sign, right? This is what you are going to do to show that you are keeping up your part of the covenant. And God says, I will keep up my part. And God, what he does is provides offspring, like we just said, with Isaac in a miraculous way. And then God provides offspring to Isaac in a miraculous way through barren wives. And what we are seeing is, like I said, God is committed to his people. God is doing what he said he would do. God is keeping his promises. So we then get to... Jacob. Genesis doesn't focus too much on on Isaac. We're given a little bit, but not a whole lot. And then we get to Jacob. And Jacob is this deceitful guy. Maybe you've you've heard him referred to before as the deceiver. Okay, so I have a great namesake. And uh, he's not a great guy. When you read about Jacob in the Bible, you will see that, man, he's a shady character. He does a lot of really questionable things. But what's really incredible is that through all of it, through all of his shady dealings with people, through all of his shady uh, actions and all the things that he does that we would look at and frown upon, guess what? God is keeping his promise. God is going to continue to provide offspring for Jacob, even though from from everyone looking in, we would say, why in the world would he use Jacob? Jacob is an absolute mess of a human being, and yet God is using him. But not only using him, God is continuing to keep the promise that he made to Abraham, to Abraham's offspring. Remember, God told him to look up in the sky and to see all the stars. And he said, that's how many descendants you will have. Right? And at this point, the family is still pretty small. But then once we get past Jacob, in chapter 37, we are introduced to one of his sons named Joseph. And what's really fascinating is that we are, t- we are focused in on Joseph from chapters 37 all the way through the end, through chapter 50. Joseph is given the most, I guess you could say, screen time here in the book of Genesis of any individual, even more than Abraham, more than Isaac, more than Jacob. We are focused in on Joseph. And here's why. Here's why I think. Because if you remember in chapter 12, one of the things that God promised to Abraham was that in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I believe what we see in Joseph is a a snapshot of how that's going to happen or what that's going to look like. So turn with me to the end of Genesis and uh, we'll look at just a couple verses here. We're not going to read the whole thing, obviously. But in chapter thirty-seven, we see that uh, that Joseph is having these dreams, and these dreams are that his brothers are bowing down to him, and he has another dream where even his his father and mother bow down to him, and so his brothers they're not happy about that. They're like, uh, "You think we're going to bow down to you, pal? I don't think so." So they try to take things into their own hand to get rid of him, and they end up selling him as a slave, and he winds up down in Egypt. Well, when he gets to Egypt, he is sold to a man named Potiphar and he becomes a servant in Potiphar's house. And so in Genesis 39, uh, look with me at verses uh, one, two, and three. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph, even though he'd been wrongfully treated, sold as a slave, he becomes a servant in the house of Potiphar, but yet God is with him. And Joseph becomes a blessing to the house of Potiphar. We see that everything that he does, God causes it to succeed. Now remember, he said in here, or the, uh, that Pharaoh, or I'm sorry, that Potiphar is an Egyptian. The first readers of Genesis would have been the Israelites who just came out of slavery in Egypt. They don't have very good thoughts of Egyptians, right? But yet here's Joseph, the slave of an Egyptian, and he's causing everything, that the Egypt, everything in the Egyptian's house to be blessed, essentially, right? It's, it's a good thing. So then you've got the issue with uh, with Potiphar's wife trying to have relationships with Joseph, and he won't do it. He says, I can't sin against my God and do that. And so she lies and comes up with this whole thing, and Potiphar believes her, and so he's thrown in prison. So man, you think, man, it can't really get any worse for Joseph. He's already been sold as a slave, and now he's down in, in Egypt, and now he's wrongfully accused again And now he's thrown into prison. But look look down at the end of chapter 39. This is verses 21 through 23. "'But the Lord was with Joseph "'and showed him steadfast love "'and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison.' And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So here's Joseph, an offspring of Abraham to whom God made that promise. And in every situation where he is, he's being wrongfully treated, but yet... He is causing things to be good. He is causing good things to happen everywhere he is because God is with him, and God is working through him to bless those around him. So then we see that there's more dreams that are involved with Joseph's life, and because of that, he gets a chance to interpret a dream for the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And this is a significant dream because in the dream, we find out that there's gonna be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine, And so, Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph, and uh, we, verse, sorry, hold on, chapter 41, verses 37. So Joseph not only interprets Pharaoh's dream, but he also says, I I got an idea on how we can plan to, to overcome this famine. So verse 37 of chapter 41, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and as wise as you. You shall be over my house and over all my people, and you shall order themselves as uh, they shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. So Joseph now becomes second in charge to Pharaoh, the most powerful man, perhaps in the known world at that point. And then the, the the famine comes, and things get bad. Now look at the very end of chapter forty-one, verse fifty-three: Seven years of plenty that occurred in the land came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. And there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. So let's just zoom out and... Take, take note of what we're seeing here. Joseph, a descendant of Abraham, has now become the second in charge. You, you could say he's at the right hand of Pharaoh. And there is famine over all the earth. And everyone who wants to be saved from that famine, everyone who wants to survive that famine, Pharaoh says, you've got to go to that one man. You go to Joseph. Whatever he says do. Now, does that sound familiar at all? Now, that is significant because we are seeing a picture of how Abraham's descendants are being a blessing to the whole earth, literally the entire earth. The only method of survival is to go to Egypt, to the son of Abraham, to his descendant, for food, to survive the famine. Now, I hope that you all are thinking big picture, you got your Bible hats on and you're thinking, wait a second, that sounds an awful lot like the gospel. That sounds an awful lot like, man, all of us are born into sin and we cannot save ourselves from that sin, but there is one man, Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, and he is the one that if you wanna be saved from your sin, you must go to him and do what he says. Because ultimately, The promise that God made to Abraham is not fulfilled in Joseph. It's fulfilled in Jesus. Look with me to Galatians chapter three, real quick. Now, we have the benefit of having the whole Bible. And Paul references back to Genesis to help the Galatians understand some truths about Jesus. And he says, this is Galatians chapter three, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. He's quoting from Genesis 22 where God says, uh, actually, let's just look at it. Genesis 22, let me see what verse. Verses 17 and 18. God is repeating the promise that he made to Abraham and in Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18, he says this. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring, singular, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's what Paul's referencing. And so what I said at the very beginning, that Genesis is a foundational book It's foundational not just to understand how everything that's here came to be. It is foundational for that. But the book of Genesis is foundational for understanding salvation. The book of Genesis is is foundational for us understanding how a sinner like you and me can be forgiven of our sins and can be saved. The way that we are forgiven of our sins, the way that you and I have salvation is because God has kept the promise that he made to Abraham. And Jesus, who is the offspring of Abraham, this is why we have all the genealogies in scripture. They seem really boring when you get to it in your reading plan, but they're significant when we start tracing back, wait a second, God made this promise to Abraham and all these genealogies are tracing from Abraham all the way to Jesus. And Paul makes it clear Hey, God made that promise way long time ago. But because He did, we understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. If we don't have Genesis, salvation itself, Jesus being the one that we must go to for forgiveness, is really not clear as to why that's the case. But it's because God commits to His people that He chooses because God is merciful it's a merciful thing that God has done God didn't have to choose Abram God didn't have to show mercy to all of creation but he did and because God made that promise to Abraham not just because he made it but because he's kept it then you and I By going to Jesus, we are saved from our sins. Just like we see Joseph being a blessing to the whole world, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. And that he's a blessing to the whole world because the invitation is for everyone. For anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Why? Because God kept his promise to Abraham. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the book of Genesis, such a foundational book. God, we are so, so grateful that you're a God who makes commitments, but more than that, you're a God who keeps your word. When you told Abraham that you would bless him and in him all the families of the earth would be blessed, you kept your word. And it's through his offspring, Jesus, that all the nations of the, of the earth are blessed. It's through Jesus that we find blessing. So God, I pray you'd help us to understand Genesis as the foundational book that it is. I pray that you'd help us to understand salvation as it is rooted even here in the very first book of the Bible. And God, we thank you that you show us mercy. God, we pray that as we continue to study all these different books of the Bible, that we would see how, how in all of it, you're a God who keeps your word. You are faithful to us, even when we are not faithful to you. and We thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.